Um, okay, <clears throat> here we're wrapping up, Lord willing, the, uh, our little series called The Struggle is Real. We've engaged in many of the different topics that, uh, that I think there's this kind of misunderstanding sometimes, in the, especially in the non-Christian world, but maybe sometimes in the Christian world too, that, that, that Christ followers don't struggle in certain ways, they kind of have it all together, and, or that at least we think we're that way. And um, across the board, that's just not true. And so as we've engaged in these different conversations about some of these, we, well, there's a few we wanted to talk about, but then kind of ran out of time. And we've talked about them recently, like doubt. We talked significantly about doubt as we're ending up John, the book of John, and we'll touch on that again as we get into Daniel. Um, uh, issues of ethnicity and race is a topic that we thought about diving into on Sunday morning. We have many times before. This time we did it last Wednesday night. We had a, a Chris Sherrod who's been in charge of the Wednesday night's um, set up a, a panel of people from different ethnic backgrounds, and we got to ask questions, and, and they answered questions. It was, it was awesome. And so we'll probably do that a couple of times a year. And those of you who are here, at least I think, I think for all of us who are here, it was a great, great time. And, um, <coughs> and then the flesh and addiction and things like that, we're going to be talking about this, this coming Wednesday night. And so those will be other he headings that we kind of missed out on, which is okay, and, and we'll, we'll dive into them in different ways. And Obviously, those are all topics that come up um, in different passages anyway, and in fact, we'll, some of them will today. When we talk about failure, which is kind of where we're wrapping up this conversation today on the heading of failure, failure is something that Christians deal with, um, all different types of failure. I mean, just normal career failure and, and finance failure, marriage failure, how our kids turn out failures, and moral challenges and difficulties and addictions and all that kind of stuff. Those are all failures that that we face as well, um, that we're not somehow protected from those or, or whatever, that's there. Of course, fundamentally, we talked about, there are, last week we talked about a few things that we could do to minimize the risks of certain types of failure, um, but, but fundamentally, what we are is failures. And, and we embrace that as Christians. That's, that's a fundamental teaching in Christianity. You have to accept that you're a failure in order to move on from that. And we'll talk more about that as we get into it. Romans 3.23 makes that abundantly clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Welcome to the club. Human race, we are a race of failures. Um, we, we do not live up to the standards that God has for us. Even the ones we could live up to, we don't live up to. Um, and so this is a this picture is, is part of who we are. But understand, this isn't just some big cosmic sin moral failure concept. This is just about the everyday struggle with being a human, and the wrestling match that that means. So I'm gonna if you don't know about the passage that I'm about to give to you or show you that the Apostle Paul wrote to us wrote down for us to be reading two thousand years later. This is this is arguably one of the most comforting passages anywhere in the Bible. So again, reminding you, this is the Apostle Paul. If you didn't grow up in church, it kind of goes Jesus, Paul, and Peter. I mean, they're like, they're like right there, right? I mean, as, as when it comes to humans, they're kind of, the, they're kind of a, the best representative of the best of us in so many ways. I mean, we're about to teach about Daniel for a while. Yes, okay, Daniel's pretty, pretty awesome, no doubt. But in the New Testament especially, as Christians, I mean, Paul is Paul, Traveled around the world. He'd, he'd preached the gospel in places that got him nearly killed until eventually it did get him killed. And he wrote half the books of the New Testament. I mean, this is, this is an important dude. If he is writing what I'm about to read, then there's a place for us in the kingdom. Ready? Romans 7, 
For I don't always, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anybody? I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not, for I do not, sorry, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Yeah? Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Listen, he's struggling. He's struggling to even put this into words. And this is the Apostle Paul, and he doesn't know exactly how to verbalize it. The good news is he doesn't have to. He's close enough. We all know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about that tendency in each one of us that we go, wait a minute, that good thing I wanted to do, I I never did that. Or, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do this. Not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. And then we do it. Like it's, what is that in us? Paul is struggling with the exact same thing. And if Paul is struggling with the level of failure that throughout his life, over and over and over again, he's facing this crisis. I want to do the good thing and I don't do it. <coughs> I don't want to do the, good, the bad thing and I keep doing it. What's wrong with me? If, if Paul is confused in that broken state, then it's probably not surprising that we are confused in that broken state. Absolutely. Even Jesus. Now, Jesus never had a moral failing He never had a sin experience, but he experienced things that we would sometimes call different versions of failure. He was too exhausted to talk at times. He didn't cure cancer when he was here on earth. He didn't solve slavery when he was here on earth. He could have done those things and we would go, why not? That seems like a failure. Human flaws, not not sin. So Jesus would never have written that passage, by the way, in Romans 7. He did not have that problem. The good he wanted to do, he did. And the evil he wanted to avoid, he avoided. But he had to learn things. He had to grow. He had to develop. The book of Hebrews tells us he had to learn. He learned obedience. Luke tells us that he grew in favor with God and man. So So I don't think we should have in our mind this image that every time Jesus hit a nail with a hammer, it sunk all the way in perfectly with the first shot. That would be a misunderstanding of of sinfulness versus human. And so I think Jesus bent over nails and had to learn how to hit a hammer and a nail correctly. And I think he stubbed his toe in the dark. I don't think he sinned when he did it like the rest of us, but I think (laughs) he stubbed his toe in the dark. He stepped on whatever their version of Legos were in the middle of the night, right? Um, I've said before, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that if, that if the writer of Hebrews says he was tempted in all ways that we are tempted, that Jesus must have experienced a wheelbarrow tilting to the side, fighting it all the way to the ground as it tipped over and dumped the load of dirt or boards or whatever that he had all the way out on the ground, no matter how much he fought it. Because if not, I'm not sure he's experienced temptation in all the ways that I have. That is a testing moment for those of you who've never I've said before, like I, I am an official moral opponent of two-wheeled wheelbarrows. The purpose of a wheelbarrow is to test your faith. That is its purpose. So I think, I think Jesus faced those moments just like we do, and he learned from them. How amazing that God would come in such a state 
is to have to and get to learn things like we do. Sometimes you can't learn something without failure. We got any snow skiers? Is that a thing for anybody? One of the rules about snow skiing is if you're not falling, you're not trying hard enough, right? So I had a few pictures. I wish I could have gone back. It's been so long of people falling like this. I had a special button. When I fell, I did it right. Um, the next one, it's not, that, that's not me because he's wearing an Olympic outfit. That's clearly not me. But, and the dreads give it away. But the, I, was, I was famous for having the type of fall that's called a what? Ski people? A yard sale. That's right. Because, because every skier and snowboarder for the, the, who was 100 yards behind me would have to keep up like, here's your glove, dude. Here's your, here's your pole, dude. Here's your ski, dude. Like, I could leave it strewn all the way up the side of the hill as people are coming up and dropping off my supplies back to me um, in that moment. That's, when, when, you, when you fall, that's a good sign that you're probably trying. And, and if you don't ever fall, if there's never any of that, and again, I'm not, I'm not applying this to moral failure and sin, I'm applying this to messing up, that we mess up and it's part of who we are, and we learn to risk. We have the room and grace to risk and fail. Failure, you have to be okay, it has to be okay to fail in order for you to risk. Um, years ago, I had there, heard a preacher use the example of a basketball coach whose team shot and missed and shot and missed the whole first half, and in the second half, the coach says, you guys are terrible, uh, you, you were shooting and missing, and so here's the deal. First person who shoots and misses in the second half sits out the rest of the season. Now, what is that coach hoping to motivate? Better shots. That's right. Accuracy. What does he motivate? Yeah, passing. A lot of passing, right? Especially, no one's going to, I'm not taking that first shot, right? No one's going to do that because that's foolish. God's not a fool, he calls us into this with him knowing what failures we are, knowing how bad we are at this stuff, and he calls us into it anyway. Now, you may immediately, and I won't take a second and correct something, you may immediately, speaking of coaches, and if you grew up in the South and, and you had even a, a pseudo-Christian opportunity in a gym or a coach, you had Philippians 4.13 up on the wall somewhere of your gym, right? So Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, or all things through Christ who strengthens me, Right? Because that's what that's about. That's about, you know, can I press this? Can I, can I do these gains? Christ, through Christ I can, right? That's the, that's the image that that's supposed to create. Um, I hate to break it to you, but actually, here's what this passage is actually about. The irony of using this passage to defend, no, no, I don't have to suffer. I don't have to struggle. I don't have to fail because Christ is in me and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is to miss the actual verse before this verse. In the midst of what Paul is saying, verse 12 says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any, circ any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This passage is about suffering. I can suffer because Christ is in me. I can be hungry or full. I can have plenty or not enough because of Christ in me. That's what the, the, the irony of using this passage to argue against humans, against Christians suffering and struggling is so ironic because this is a, this is a suffering passage. It is the purpose of this passage. That's what the whole point of it. It is in the midst of the struggle that Christ, that we can do anything because Christ gives us strength, meaning we can even suffer 
We can even fail. We can fall flat on our face. And we can have the strength to fall flat on our face because of Christ in us. That's, that's what's being talked about here. I can endure it. <clears throat> Think about this from Paul's perspective. This is not a guy who's just making this stuff up. He's not like, this isn't, these aren't fortune cookies. This is the Apostle Paul who dealt with failure at every turn, who dealt with, with struggle and suffering at every turn. His life is a tragedy outside of the gospel. If you read his story, you can understand why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, if Christ wasn't resurrected from the dead, we are to be pitied. You know someone whose life needed to be pitied if Christ wasn't resurrected from the dead? Paul's. He spent his whole, he poured out his entire life really doing nothing but this. If this, was, if this wasn't real, and he, he dealt with this all the time. And listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9. He says, <coughs> three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, this should leave me. He's talking about this thing he calls the thorn in his flesh. He never tells us what it is. The, the passages in Romans 6, 7, and 8 lead me to think that Paul at least understood addiction. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a vision issue. We know that he had vision problems from different passages. Maybe that's what he's talking about. It must have been hard to travel around the world telling people about Jesus if you can't see. And yet, whatever it was, he came to God, and if anyone's earned God doing what he wants, you would think it would be the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul comes to him and says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you get this answer? I could take that from you, son, but I'm not going to. That's hard. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's hard. You, can you imagine Paul the first time going, why not? Don't you want me to be more efficient at this? Don't you want me to not be handicapped in this? Don't you want me to be able to accomplish more in this? And God's saying, yeah, not really. I would rather my grace be sufficient in you. Paul understands this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think that's hard for us for this reason. So many of us have such a bad, intuitive picture of what a father is. Maybe even what a father and a mother is. If you grew up with a poor picture of a father, which so many people do, I had a father who was in many ways very gentle, and so this is easier for me from that perspective, I think intuitively, but for many, this idea of, of, a, of a dad, this is the picture that a friend once gave me, the picture of a dad who's under the car, and he says, hey, go get me a, a wrench, and you go to the toolbox, and you, you don't know what a wrench is for sure, and so you get something you think is a wrench, and you come back, and it's pliers, and, and, and the, what does dad do? In that moment, that's going to create an intuition for you about God. Can I trust God with the thorn in my flesh? What happens in that moment? Does dad, does dad uh, is, is he a patient of dad to go like, no, I, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a wrench. This isn't a wrench. This is a pliers. Try again, which can be harsh. Or is he a dad who cusses you out, who calls you names? What's wrong with you? Are you stupid? You don't know? You don't know what a wrench is? And that, that gets driven down into us, this sense of, being defined by that, or, or maybe even worse, the dad who, without saying a word, just slides out from under the car, storms to go get the wrench, and comes back and gets under the car like you're not even there. The, the angry, out-of-control, abusive dad who's, whose ego can't handle our little failures, and what we do is we apply that to God and understanding, listen, when God sends you to get a wrench, he already knows you're coming back with pliers. He knew before he sent you that pliers is what he's coming back with. 
I, I really do think the best picture for us in our relationship to God when it comes to ministry is that we're God's big helpers. You know, like your kid is. You're such a big helper, right? Now go do something else so I can fix what you just broke, right? I, I, I think this is the correct picture that God calls alongside. I was like, sure, Chris, you can preach. You just do that. You're such a big helper. Yeah, sure, you could be those kids' parent. You're such a big helper. I'm so proud. I mean, again, it's not that we're insignificant. He calls us and empowers us through his spirit to accomplish these amazing things. But the whole time, it's really him doing it through us and very often in spite of us. And so I think that's the, that's the beautiful picture that gives us the freedom to fail and, and gives us the freedom to risk I think the Christian life is often the, the, the attempt. We try, we fail, we repent, we change, we grow, and we try, and we fail, and we repent, and we change, and, we, and hopefully we grow, and then we try. And then I think that's the normal Christian. I think it's the, what the Apostle Paul experienced. Now, there is something in there. Are you growing? Are you not? We talked about that last week. If you're not growing, then maybe this is just a painful exercise for you. It's time to start growing and learning and so what's that thing that you've been afraid to try? Does that thing follow God's leadership? Does it fall into a life devoted to Christ? If it does, if you discern that it does, if fear of failure is the only thing that's holding you back, then you need to remember your identity as a beloved child of God that's been bestowed upon you and that he would never leave you or forsake you. What is that thing that you would say, this is what's right and I ought to try it, but I'm afraid We'll talk more about how we, how we engage in that together. We embrace our failures even while we seek to grow in them and avoid them. We grow in them and we want to be set free by them. Now, here's what's wild. You might ask, wait a minute, how exactly do failures set us free? Uh-oh. Mike went dead there for a second. I'm glad you asked. Um, a few weeks ago, Lindsey Bearden's brother, um, Ryan Steele, died. Um, in his early 30s, just, just died in his sleep. Uh, probably a heart issue or something like that. Well, the family got to discover in a way they didn't know before that he was a poet. And, and they read a poem at his funeral. And so Ryan, Ryan had written this funeral. This, this is what I mean when I say we gain freedom from our failure. It's called dethroned. I once put myself ahead of the rest like I was their king. They were second best. I manipulated, I fought. How could I ever mend that which I had bought? You came without grudge, without hate that I should bear. It was love you wore upon your magnificent chair. A king, perfect and true. A king, warrior and poet. Healer and redeemer. A king who came to save me, the blasphemer. So heartily I resisted your throne. I screamed, struggled and groaned, but now dethroned I am finally free from that wicked, awful man who dwells inside of me. See, here's the deal. We're terrible kings and queens. We want to be kings and queens, but we're awful at it. And the truth is that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, and us coming into the recognition of that will set you free like nothing else ever possibly could. Once we recognize that we're his little helper, that it doesn't actually depend on us, it doesn't actually all rest on our shoulders, but that we actually have a God who's called us to do this, and he knows we're bringing pliers then it allows us to do our best. Or is this a wrench? No, that's pliers. That's, we can embrace the freedom of that, that we can try to engage in this and live in this. 
The foundation of our freedom to live in holiness is that we know we are sick and frail and weak and addicted. As is so often in our weakness, as Paul noted, when his good, Paul noted this is when God's goodness, his grace, his glory is sometimes best expressed is in our weakness. When we see us grow, when people see us grow, when our children see us grow and change, that is a testimony. When our wives see us grow and change, because as men, we don't do that very well. I mean, if, it's, if you're after 21, you're not going to learn a new skill if you're a man because you're so afraid of looking foolish. So for, when our wives see us actually grow and change, and like, well, that's proof there's a God. This is a, that's, as, as goofy as that is, it is also powerfully true. When, when we see one another's growth and change and encouragement in that, that's really powerful. We're, we're like the little kid sitting in the little toy passenger seat car steering wheel with a little, little red plastic horn that goes, and we're, we're steering along thinking we're, we're in charge here. And what we need to be able to do is take whatever area of our life that is, obviously our lives as a whole, but there are areas, you may know there are areas of your life when you're like, you know what, I'm king of this part. I'm king of this part. I make these decisions. I don't submit this decision to God. I make these decisions. He doesn't get to have a say. We need to lay those at his altar as well. Acknowledge he is king. Proverbs 28, 13 tells us that when we do fail, when we do sin, here's one of the ways we respond. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can spend the rest of your life writing poetry and hymns, about the idea of him cleansing us from all unrighteousness, and we wouldn't get it. That is a concept that is so beyond us. The idea of being cleansed from all unrighteousness is so big. How would we even begin to grasp, our, grasp that idea? This is a God who is so worthy of our love and devotion and prayer and confession. Um, our prayer team, on that note, our prayer team and our Stephen ministers, during the season of Lent, are going to be meeting during church, during, during the time of the services of church, and we have a prayer room over in the new building. Wow, no idea. So, a prayer room in the new building. Everybody's awake now. <laughs> Apparently, God wants you to hear this announcement. Listening? <laughs> All right, so, the, the prayer team and the Stephen ministers are going to be doing that prayer time during the services. You are welcome, one, to join them. Um, if you would like to go in there during the service or whatever, during one of the services and go pray um, during the Lent season, they would love to have you come do that. It's up on the second floor. It's easy to find. Um, if you have a prayer request that you would like for them to be praying for in particular, and maybe it's a struggle, maybe it's a failing, maybe it's an area of your life where you're afraid that failure is coming, that you would say, how do I, how do I, I want God to guide me in this, that they would love to pray for you for this. We'll probably create an email that you can send stuff to, but for now, if you just want to jot it down, or send one of us an email with it, we'll get that to that team to pray for you. This will be going on all during Lent. Um, we don't have to be afraid to engage in these type of things, to, to pray these things, to talk about these things. Even in regards to, even when we sin, we have this beautiful picture in Joshua chapter 7. <clears throat> that Joshua, So Joshua has just led the people of Israel to conquer the fortified city of Jericho. And, and through God's leadership and miraculous intervention, they utterly conquered Jericho and and God tells them not to take anything from Jericho. Next thing you know, they go to fight this podunk little village called Ai. And, and so Joshua's like, hey, just a few thousand of you guys go, go wipe them out and come back and join the rest of us. And instead of coming back with a victory, they come back with 36 body bags. 
And, and Joshua falls on his face before God and, and has this response. And he's, he grows in this big, long kind of, um, it really feels like a pity party to me. And, and it's, you know, he's like, we owe, we've, it's what's happened and, and your name won't be praised and we should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. I always say I'm so glad he doesn't mention Egypt, but he comes close. He's like, we should have stayed on the other side of Jordan. And, and God has a fascinating response to Joshua laying on his face. And it seems like we're going like, well, this is cool that Joshua is doing this, like how seriously Joshua is taking the sin or, or the failing or whatever. But, but God's response is a little different. Joshua, God says to Joshua in Joshua 7.10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Again, I don't know if it's that. Get up. Or is it, come on, boy, get up. Or is it, oh, please, would you get up? Like, I don't, I don't know exactly what the tone that God has here is, but it clearly is. You've picked the wrong thing. Get up. Why are you falling on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I've commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. There's sin in the camp, Joshua. You're the commander. Get the sin out of the camp. Figure out where the sin is and get rid of it. This, this is a great response to sin in our life. We, when we discover sin in our life, hey, I found access to inappropriate material on my cell phone. Good. Delete it. Get the sin out of the camp. You don't play with this. You get rid of it. You don't make a provision for the flesh. I've got this inappropriate relationship with a person and a, who I'm communicating with. Okay, stop. And delete their phone number. And, and let your last communication be, this is wrong. I'm never communicating with you again. Hey, I've got this access to this, this thing that I've got that I'm storing. I shouldn't be taking. I shouldn't be using. I shouldn't be whatever. And it's in my house. Okay. Flush it. Don't just put it in the trash. Listen, you can pull little Debbies out of the trash and eat them, especially if they're still in the package. I've heard that. I've heard that. This is a, this is, get rid of it. If it's something that's going to make a provision for your flesh, if there's sin in the camp, get rid of it. That's the picture. Figure it out and get rid of it. And, and by the way, this does not minimize the sin. Obviously, that's not the case. Listen to what, this is, that sin is devastating to our lives and our souls and to whatever communities we live in. There really isn't such a thing as isolated sin. However, wallowing in sin is not the same thing as repentance. Just wallowing in our depression and our sin and our self-recrimination is not the same thing as repenting and turning away from that sin, getting up and getting the sin out of the camp. He does the right thing going to God, absolutely. But God's response to him is, you know what's going on here. You don't need my leadership. You know what it is. You're not, why are you asking? You know already. Apostle Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize that is upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think this is good things and bad things. Put them behind you. Move along. We have the grace to risk and the grace to fail. And as I move into this, I'm going to take just a second just because this is cool. So one of my favorite examples that I'm not going to tell the whole story of is the mighty men. You can find them if you look up in Scripture is the way their friendship seems to bond them and the way their devotion to their king seems to unite them. And for years, I've looked for artwork um, to show who these men really were and what they were like and, and that kind of stuff. And, uh, um, and it always shows them wrong. It shows them as Greeks or Romans or even worse, 14th century knights or something like that. Um, and so finally, of all places on Walmart's website, um, I found um, a picture of these men. So first, David's mighty men, and I'm going to just have this up here as a 
And, and what's cool is whoever painted this had did a little research and actually understands, and you can come up and look after the service, but um, what, what Jewish soldiers would have looked like. And the fact that they're not all Jewish, some of them are others and stuff like that, but here's what my favorite is actually, the, my, some of my favorite people in the whole Bible is the three um, who, again, you'll hear me teach about sometime if you haven't before. We've got it online in multiple places, but the three, their friendship, the bond of their friendship and their comradeship, and this, is, this portrays them as actually Jewish warriors, which is so cool to actually see this correctly, down to the fact that they don't have swords. I love it. So this is a, we need this, we need the bond of friendship to lead us into risking, to lead us into trying, and dare I say it, sometimes leading us into failure. Hopefully not sin, I don't mean moral failure, into failure. I've got a couple of quick videos I want to show you that when you, um, that sometimes when we are, um, we need this relationship. So this was a, a camp out place that we would go, and we would, um, we, there was a tree we found that was over the Cypress River. And so, so we decided we were going to see if we could jump off of it, and so we checked the river, and then um, I went up first, and I jumped, and, and uh, it took me forever to do it because it was very, very scary, and so um, I would like count down from three multiple times. You ever done that? Like, did I jump? My eyes are closed. Like, did I jump yet? Paul's like, no, you're still in the tree. So, um, so finally, I jumped, but here's what happens. Over the next few hours, a group of young men and leaders we came together, and, and so we're like, okay, everybody's going to jump on this. Everybody, we challenge and push each People be like, I can't do it, no way. And like, oh, come on, you can't, you big sissy. And so we would, you know, there was this, this peer pressure that's created by believers or these friends or even just sometimes men, guys, encouraging one another to do this stuff. And so soon you get, well, we could dive. Somebody ought to dive off of it. And so I think right. um, this is Kevin East, our friend. He's like, I'm going to do it. And he finally does it. And so he barely makes it, Right. Or like, so everybody then is like, well, I'm going to dive. Can I dive? I'll, I'll try it. And so I'll try diving. And then someone says, you know what? I'm going to do a backflip off of it. So um, our very own Paul McKenzie goes, I can do a backflip off of it. Oh, so and everyone who's willing, which not me, everyone else is willing to do the backflip is like, I'm going to do, we'll do that. And I, I face the hassling like, oh, come on, Chris, you can do the backflip. Like, nope. So um, I'll show you a second why. Um, and then someone says, um, uh, you know, a bunch of us ought to jump off at the same time. We could dive off. And so that's kind of the culmination of, of three guys get up there and dive in together into the river. And, and it's, it was pretty stocky. And then um, the reason that, uh, the reason that I, this is why I didn't do the backflip, because this would have been me. This is my friend Josh Berger um, who did the backflip last. He's like, I'll do it. You know what? I'm going to do it after all. Oh, shouldn't have done that. So sometimes, here's the thing, failure is part of it. And here we are years later watching a video of him fail at that. And so, and laughing with that together and celebrating and that there's, there's a, a camaraderie and a story that I feel like we need more of this in the church. Are we pushing each other? Why aren't you working with kids? Well, I'm scared of little kids. Then go fail. Go try. I don't know what I'm doing. We'll teach you. We'll help you figure it out. I'm afraid to go on that trip. I'm afraid to go on that mission trip, okay? Well, I think you ought to. I'm going to pressure you. I'm going to push you, the positive peer pressure of the church to go try it out. Go do that. Get out of your comfort zone. Go for the flip. Three of us can dive at once. That, the different versions that we need that in the church, we need people in our lives who go, I'm, I'm afraid to talk to this person because I'm afraid I'm going to get it wrong. No, here's the deal. You're going to get it wrong. That doesn't mean you don't do it. This is in, in Christ, in obedience, we, we go with this. Friendship is risky. We need each other to encourage each other. There's so many passages about this. Here's a couple. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion. 
Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. See, this growth and change and stuff, this is normal, and it's what we encourage each other to do. You'll have a chance this Wednesday. Um, we're going to have a, a special celebration with Aaron Adalian. So Aaron, who has been our children's minister for the last year and a half, two years, is, is leaving and going to another church to be their children and family pastor. And so, of course, anytime there's a transition or a change, some of us experience a lot of fear and trepidation and panic and all that kind of stuff, yet don't. This is, this is normal. This is part of the Christian life. This is part of even being on church staff is that God moves us around and trains us up. We get two years to learn and grow with him. He gets to learn and grow with us, and then he transitions to something else. Of course, we don't like transition. We don't like change. We love somebody. We come alongside. Chance to, that was weird. He's going to get the chance to build up a ministry almost from the ground up. How fun for us to be a part of that. Um, and then what we're really sad about is losing Jessica, uh, his wife, and uh, Otto and Theo, which is, I mean, we kind of tolerated him for them anyway. But the, um, just kidding, although he would totally agree. Um, so Wednesday night, if you want to come Wednesday night, we're going to have zebra cakes and kinder hippos, which are his favorites. Um, you can pile him up with those if you want to. But, um, uh, and just come Wednesday and tell him. If, if your ministry is overlapped with his, tell him what it's meant to you that he's been here. We need this. We all need these in one another's lives. We need people who will speak into our lives. We are treasure. We are saints. We are pure in him, and we need to hear that from each other. Listen to Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How important is this? Watch this. Got the video ready? I didn't grow up in a family with a strong believer base going to church, but was saved at a young age by a young little second grader who invited me to vacation Bible school. I had a hardworking family, hardworking dad was the first person in my family to get to go to college. And um, after my freshman year, I joined the Marines. I grew up um, in DeSoto, a suburb of Dallas. Uh, I met my wife at Stephen F. Austin State University in the Lumberjack Marching Band. Then I went away to law school at the University of Texas in Austin, practiced in Dallas for about three years, and then we moved to Tyler in 1999. I became a Christian, which is just a miracle, only in 2013, but I was still a practicing homosexual, but I considered myself still a Christian and had a love of the Lord. It took me 57 years to become a Christian. I was an in-your-face atheist. My time in the Marines was it was a very good time. It was at times very hard, um, but very good. I remember one of the guys um, that, that I had a chance to meet and had a profound impact on me was Chief Warrant Officer Brantley. And he, uh, he took me under his wing. I was a, you know, a new boot, fresh out of boot camp. I was a Lance Corporal, I think, at the time. And for whatever reason, he saw something in me and uh, he wanted more. He would hold me accountable. And he would say, I expect you'll have that done next weekend, which was a lot of work. Uh, that was something that normally, somebody might stretch that out over a series of months to complete all those tasks. And to, to do that in a month was a lot of work, but I did it. And it wasn't long after that, that I had pinned on corporal. And um, I didn't have that rank 
on my shoulders for uh, any time before he came up and said, have you completed the sergeant's course? Are you working on the sergeant's course? Always pushing me to the next level. In 2009, I uh, was ordained as a deacon at that prior church. Had a chance to attend the ordination service and over a hundred different people coming through the line, just laying hands on me and whispering blessings and encouragement. Towards the end of the, the ceremony, I saw my dad stand up and I instantly uh, kind of teared up at that point because um, he was um, he was always my best friend. By the time he got to me, um, I was crying, I think. I think my whole family was crying. My dad was in the last stages of his life from cancer and uh, I was really eager to hear what he wanted to say and he got up there and he put his hands on me and he just said, I love you. Um, I'm proud of you, which are things that, thank goodness, he had told me all throughout my life. And then he left me with, I want you to be available and I want you to let God use you. And as I reflected on that, I started thinking about what kind of guy my dad was. And he had always been an encourager. Bex, um, my friend in Denver, is a missionary from England that has been in the States for 18 years. We met through a 12-step program online, uh, on the telephone, and became friends. She knew I was gay. Uh, we didn't talk about it very much. Uh, I didn't want to talk about it because I knew she was a strong Christian and I was afraid of what she might say. Bex and I were just talking on the phone that day and we were doing what we do a lot of times, which is to read a devotional together. And I was like, I don't know scripture that well. And she said, I bet you know some scripture. And I said, well, I do. I know some in Romans. And she paused and sighed and said, I bet you do. I bet that's hard. And I said, oh, that must be the clobber verses you're talking about. And uh, I said, I've never read them. I refuse to read them. Um, and she said, well, that's really between you and God. It's not between you and I. You know, I have no agenda in our friendship. Uh, and I said, well, Bex, go on and read them to me. And so with trepidation, she read Romans 1, uh, 26 and 27 and 28. That very moment I took it in and I surrendered my life uh, that I had known for 63 years to Christ. Uh, I su surrendered my homosexuality and uh, my life has been forever changed. If I saw him today, I would just I would hug him and I would say, thank you. Um, but at the same time, uh, man, I would just wanna tell him my life story. Like, look at where I am. Look at, <clears throat> this is my wife, these are my kids. The impact that you've had is real. I would hope that he would know that too. But I know he would have been proud of him and encouraged him the same way. That's just what my dad was. He was that voice of encouragement. Uh, he always had a smile on his face. Everyone always talked about that as well, that my dad was always smiling, doing things behind the scenes, showing his love for the world through his acts of service uh, and then encouraging others in the way he did them. I didn't even know it was in the New Testament. I had heard it was in Leviticus. That wasn't a scripture I was going to read. So it was really a surprise to me, but I could tell when she said that must be hard because I was the elephant in the room. If I met somebody that was in a similar situation as me, I would walk alongside them and just love them. God's gonna do the work. I just need to do His will and love them. I think that's what I'm commanded to do. So as we recognize the importance in those stories, the importance of what it means to speak the truth in love to somebody, to say, this is, this is what I see in you, this is what I believe in you.
Um, it, it strikes me, when, when Nancy first started coming, it was like, is it okay to be here? I'm like, okay, like you challenge the rest of us. What, if, what do I need to give up? What do I need to surrender to Christ? Um, Stephen uh, caught me afterwards and told me Stephen was the Marine, and he said that this motivated him to hunt down that man and communicate with him and find out he was actually a believer, um, which he didn't know because you can't always talk about that kind of stuff in the Marines, and, and to find that out and to get to tell him about his family and his wife and his kids, exactly the stuff that's in here. This is, this is powerful stuff, our ability to speak into one another's lives. Nearly, probably nearly every person in the room, most of us in the room, have different stories like this, and if we don't, we now have the power to create them by speaking it into other people's lives. Let me give you the wrapping up here with these examples and this idea of a blessing of when we speak when we believe in somebody more than they believe in themselves, when we see things in them that we speak into them based in the truth, not in just touchy-feely, happy stuff. like that's, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the, the goofy, empty, worldly versions of this that we know are just plastic. I mean, they're just plastic and they have no real value. I'm talking about the depth of the stone of truth that when we speak this, the Hebrew Scriptures have a lot of blessings, but they're kind of hit and miss because they're fallen, broken people giving the blessings too. And, and we'll talk more about this in the future, especially when we get into the Wednesday nights after the new year with men and women. But listen to this. This is the perfect example that we have. In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus went to be baptized, and at this point he's accomplished nothing in his ministry, God the Father, Matthew three seventeen, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We need to hear this. Men, how many of us went our lives without ever hearing clearly from somebody, you are my son who I love and I'm proud to be your dad? How many ladies did we never hear someone say, you are my daughter and I'm proud to be your dad? Or I'm proud to be your mom. How many of us missed out on that and God the Father modeled this for us? Don't let another generation go by like this. That we as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandparents who are such powerful voices of encouragement or discouragement, who can speak into the life of a, of a grandchild and say, you, you are my grandchild. I'm so proud of you. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He does it again in Matthew 17. Later, God says, he was speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This was so important that, that we read this morning at communion that Peter references this as a key moment for him when he knew he experienced himself this voice from heaven. These are all overlapping and difficult concepts. Fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters were all that to one another. But learning to embrace this and to step this up. That friendship happens in the margin, which makes it tough. We're going to have to set aside the time to speak this into our children and set aside the time to speak this into one another's lives and to get to know each other well enough to know what to say. But let me encourage you in that as a church. We fail, we can fail because we have a Savior. We can accept grace because we have a Savior, and we have His voice in our lives. Let's do that Bonhoeffer quote. I, want to, I don't want to miss that Bonhoeffer quote. You got that Bonhoeffer quote? I think this communicates it very well. We'll close on this. And in a minute, Paul will bless us with the priestly blessing. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain when his brother is sure. All of us are in those moments when, when our hearts are weak and we need the Christ in somebody else's heart to speak into us.
So that's, that's my prayer for us. So stand, please, and let's pray. If um, We'll have our time of invitation. Whatever it is that the Spirit is speaking to you, if you realize there's an area of your life that you still proclaim yourself, Lord, feel free to come and lay it here at the altar. If you would say, I, I realize I've never put my faith in this God, I've never accepted the free gift of His adoption, then let us know. We'd love to pray that with you. If you've already gone through the Welcome Home team and you're ready to come live out church with a broken group of people like us, then we'd love to have you. And so um, come let us know that. Father, we're so grateful for the power of your word to speak into our lives. And I pray that um, as we struggle, and the struggle is real for us, as we wrestle through the very same things that are common to mankind, the difference isn't that we struggle, the difference isn't that we're people, the difference isn't that we have a hard time, the difference is that there is you who are our Father, who call us treasure, who have made us your very own. Lord, for anyone in here who doesn't have the freedom of having been dethroned, I pray that they would take that opportunity this morning. If there's any area of our lives that we would say we've not been dethroned, I pray that you would put that truth in us. Figure out a way to live that out. Father, I pray that you would guide us in it. Whatever it is our response needs to be, Lord, help us to be open to your spirit in your son's name. Amen.